Hello and welcome to Climate Change Unfolding, episode 12. This is part two of Engaging the Masses. This time we're on changing the culture. Before I launch into the next section of this multi-part series, first, if you haven't heard the last episode and you prefer hearing things in kind of logical, kind of systematic way, then it, it might make sense to start with that. But, you know, if you're not bothered, <laughs> just carry on. To condense down into a few minutes what I did last time, you know, ultimately, the purpose of this episode is to help you be wildly successful with your sustainability work. So to take all the wonderful things that you're doing or planning on doing even and give you the tools to engage people in a deep and powerful way. So last time I talked around the subject of motivation, you ultimately need enough motivation if you want to drive things forward and the people you're hoping to engage will need some motivation too. So if you want them to act. So if you want to hear more, just listen in to last time, but um, I'm just giving you a really, really brief overview to give you some context. I also wanted to add a few things from last time. Sometimes I press record and, and just roll with it. And when I listen back, I'm not really totally happy with the way certain things are expressed. And here are a couple of things on the last episode just to add some clarity before I get into the crux of changing your culture. I only realized on reflection, listening back, in short, I summarized the masses as wanting some kind of change, but not wanting it in, enough to be motivated to act. But that's so oversimplified and actually overlooking something really important. You know, there's a significant portion who really do care, who really want change a lot, you know, and it, and it moves them what we're doing to the natural world. It makes them angry. It makes them sad. It makes them frustrated and it, and it makes them worried, you know. But uh, for that portion of the masses, at least, it's not that they don't want it. It's not even that they don't want it enough. It's that they f often they feel unempowered. They feel helpless and they, they feel like, regardless of what I do, the fates are written in stone. You know, some people just don't see the potential in humans to change, to adapt, to rise up against these issues. They don't see the potential for humanity to fight the cause for its continued existence <laughs> against the power of money and ignorance and greed. And, and actually, that sort of framework is actually a source of hope because if something does trigger some hope in them or, or something empowers them or makes them realize that actually there is hope and they do have power, then all of a sudden, there's a big chunk of society that are already their values leaning them towards acting, but now they're ready to act and they're empowered to act. And that's when the oil companies are really going to be quaking in their boots. What if your idea for driving change connects the dots between something they already hold close to their hearts, but had up till now, up to this point, felt like they could do nothing about? What if your idea presents them with hope that change can actually happen when they previously had no hope that it could? And then you're really getting into the juicy and amazing part of cultural change, you know, of mass engagement. Then you start to wield real exciting power for change. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So let me get on to part two of engaging the masses, changing the culture. We look at the mass population and we want everyone to change to a more sustainable way of living, right? But ultimately... If you're trying to influence that change that's really intimidating it's unachievable and it and it actually de detracts from the way that real change happens so i'm going to suggest or talk about an alternative you know rather than trying to change everyone's mind focus on changing the minds of some people but really changing them you know focus on the people that you have the best chance of changing and and if those people are passionate enough they'll find other people too and person to person one human being to another using their connections ideas filter out through the culture I'm talking to you here, wherever you are in the world, listening, whoever you are, let's say you have an idea that you believe in, and if the masses are to engage with it, let's say that would be a great thing for society. And instead of getting intimidated by the overwhelming task of convincing everyone, you 
choose five people or you engage five people. You, you connect your idea to their values. They believe in what you're saying and they take action. And if they really believe in it, they subsequently convince another five people. And, and so do you. You know, you're still out there engaging with your idea and inspiring people to connect with it. And that's 30 new people then. So plus the original six. So that's 36 people that believe in your idea. And each one of those 36, if they're sufficiently engaged, convinces another five people. And you have 180. So if you do that another 11 times, by the way, you've convinced the population of the entire world it has real power to filter out through the culture if the idea is engaging enough. And that's a simplified model, obviously, but what incredible power if you can get it to work for your idea. And so I want to highlight some critical aspects to making that work for a maximum effect. Firstly, I'm going to put the focus on the virality. So for every person that engages with your idea, how many people do they subsequently also engage? That number dramatically affects its ability to spread. Is it one person for every one person that's convinced or is it 10, you know? And how do we maximize that? And my simple answer here is by going deep. And by that, I mean connecting to what matters to people. Cut to their very core, you know, connect to their values, get them emotionally involved and make it personal. You have to move them, you have to inspire them. And if you do that, they'll act instead of doing nothing and they'll share instead of scrolling past and they'll go out there and they'll tell more people. And ultimately, the work that you so badly want doing, they'll do it for you. Carrying on that same theme then, the focus needs to be going inch wide and mile deep. Less people, but more depth. An example of the opposite, just to kind of illustrate what I'm talking about here, is one of the, I don't know, 542 billboards you might have driven past to get to work. You know, how many of them stopped you in your tracks and made you reevaluate your life? <laughs> you know, that's big amounts of people driving past those billboards with small impact. It's superficial. If you're lucky, you might consciously notice it. You might just be subconscious. That's mile wide, inch deep. And that has little interest for me, you know. So I'm suggesting go inch wide, mile deep instead. Of course, caveat on that is if you can go mile wide and mile deep, all the better. You know, David Attenborough documentary has a whole hour of your attention, you know, and he, he has a lot of people who are very engaged with him. And and he has hundreds of millions of people who, who watch his documentary. So that's great, you know, but we're not all David Attenborough. Maybe uh, you have a big social following, they're highly engaged, in, in which case, great. You know, if you have, uh, you find yourself in a position of influence, brilliant. But the key thing is going deep and don't sacrifice depth for width. Sometimes you don't know who it is that might be open to the idea of full engagement with your idea. So you can also start mile wide to see where, where you get traction, but don't lose sight of the depth, right? So as, and as a side note on this, is, <laughs> I'm going to get off on one now, but something I'd like to share here at the risk of getting slightly off topic. We, we live in a very superficial society. Almost every interaction we have is really superficial, you know, online or even, even in person, we discuss things that nobody actually really gives a crap about. And, you know, when it comes down to it, we just fill the space with white noise or, or Facebook or something similar fills the space for us. And all that superficial crap, it fills up our attention. So we rarely dig below it to the things that really matter. And we rarely stop and think what really matters to the people around us. And because we live so superficially all the time, pretty much everyone feels a lack of human connection. And so when they do have a genuine human connection and a conversation with some depth, they feel heard, you know, and they feel seen. And I don't mean they get superficially seen as in, you know, for their looks or whatever else, you know, but seen for who they really are. And it really rocks people and it, may, it, and it moves them. So, 
you know, when I do remember to stop and ask meaningful questions to the people around me and, and engage them, it, it does move them and it, and it gets people thinking, you know, it, and it also enriches my life. You know, I ask questions, interesting questions, let's say, and it's, it's amazing what everyone has to teach me. I've learned so much from the time where I, I think about asking the right questions. So I end up having conversations with people I've known for only a few days and I feel like I know them better than people I've superficially known for 10 years. You know, the, the recent sort of tourism conference in Africa, that was definitely true there for, with a number of people. And, and that's really special. You know? <laughs> By the way, the same goes for when I'm on my own. It's so hard to do, but you switch your phone off, you switch everything off, give yourself some space and ask myself some interesting questions that I don't have easy answers for you. We're all, <laughs> we're all just living in this kind of daydream where... We're thinking about celebrity gossip or, or whatever our own particular flavor of distraction is. <laughs> I don't know if you guys can hear it. Hopefully not. So I'm getting distracted from my distraction. I've got some parrots. <laughs> I've got some parrots living in my roof directly above my desk. I live in a thatched house and there's a parrot nest there. And I think the parrots are having sex. And I think parrot poo just landed on my computer. <laughs> Uh, way to bring myself back into the moment I'm not quite sure how I got into living we're all living in a daydream and also how I got into parrot poo so let, <laughs> let me get back onto talking about the uh, changing the culture um, hopefully you don't get to hear the intimate details of uh, parrot sex going on in the background there's nothing like directed microphone for cutting out the crap <laughs> right where was I let's talk about going beyond the personal next thing so so for an idea to really explode <laughs> in a uh, in a viral way I was talking about it has to be powerful enough message to go beyond the personal connections you'll have a vested interest in your project of your own succeeding and you'll be likely driven by a genuine belief in the project for greater good or for whatever reason you know but also by other human drivers like personal satisfaction pride ego and all sorts of other human drives your close family and friends they also have that sort of vested interest in you succeeding too you know a personal loyalty but your idea if it's powerful enough that people with no affiliation to you can get behind it with a sense of purpose that's real power and does this the idea that you have and the story you've crafted around it stand on its own two feet and there's double benefit there. If your idea or your brand or your product can stand on its own two feet and people with no affiliation can talk about it, you really benefit from what I call trusted referrals. So um, how much more sincere is an identical referral from a friend or someone who has no vested interest in the, in the idea succeeding than, a, than, say, a salesman who's trying to sell you that idea? Such a difference. Same words massively different impact you know and people people are so used to using these filters you know filtering pictures well you would say that you know alternative motives trying to you're not only trying to work out what the person's saying but they're saying why are you saying that and what's your you know what's your vested interest that you have in succeeding you know so and it's almost a relief for people when they don't have to deal with that like if my mate says go to this place and when you go there make sure you go and visit this hotel or whatever backpackers you know it's the best place it's legitimate and i loved it and they've got no interest i just do it i don't even look into it anymore you know i just trust that person because they don't have a vested interest moving on so in the example i gave you before where you had your idea and you engaged five people in the idea you believed in there's another th important thing to mention there all those people that are out there doing your work for you advocating engaging they're also human, you know, and initially they may be super engaged, but after a month or a week or whatever, they might be starting to forget. Maybe they're getting a little distracted. And so if you really want to succeed in 
creating change it's really helpful if you create lasting advocates and you know the deeper you go the more you know it stays close to their core but you also need to encourage you know and you need to reward and you need to appreciate and you need to keep people engaged and so even better if you can create a sense of ownership over your idea maybe it's not your idea maybe it's all of your idea you know or belonging to the to a community or uh, something surrounding that idea and so it's the wonderful thing about working very little with ego and, and for maximum positive impact is you can comfortably give ideas away, give credit away, let people own your idea, make it theirs, you know, make them part of it at the very least and they'll drive it like it's their own and ultimately they and you will have much more impact. So keep the fire stoked. You've got to think not just about the immediate but keeping people involved. Coming to virality again, not every person that engages with your idea is created equal. The sphere of influence of a celebrity, say, is, is different to a layperson, for example. And that's pretty obvious. So if you get people with big followings, for example, if you bring it down to the social media level, then that obviously gives you exponentially more reach. But don't just think about numbers, and especially when it comes down to social media numbers. That can be so fickle, you know. It's also about how that social influencer interacts with his or her audience and how connected they are to the audience. You know, what's their platform to really speak to their people and, and how... Could they help your idea along if they were engaged? Let's say a head of department at university. It's not about being famous or having a big social following. It's about their influence, you know, and and, and about the effects that they can have on your idea. And and who are they speaking to, and in what context, you know? And are they and are those people that they're speaking to likely to be receptive to your idea? So, um, I'm actually, I'd say I'm probably pretty bad at this myself because. I'm probably more self-conscious than I need to be about not wanting to be just another person vying for the, those social influencers' attention to promote my own agenda. And I have at least, especially in the kayaking world where I've had some level of success or all my work environments with a big team, you know, my time is limited and lots of people want my attention for whatever. And so I can at least on a very sort of tiny level empathize with those people that are real powerful social in, uh, influencers in their own sort of fields. And so my suggestion here is that you have to look first at how you can create value for the person you're trying to engage for the sake of increasing the chances that social influencer will engage with you and for a basic human level of respect to them as a human being, not just kind of a tool for your own needs. You know, the strategy needs to be not working out which social, social influencers have power to drive your idea forwards, but how you can create value for that social influence and, and, and how you can align with their values. You know, so the point of all of this, tying it into the previous points, is focus on going inch wide but mile deep and focus on the people that are most receptive to your idea and the people that matter most, that have the biggest potential to really engage others in your ideas. An interesting concept in terms of how ideas and anything really filters out through the culture is the early adopters, the middle, and then the resistance to change. You know, So Seth Godin is a real interesting character talks and, and writes a lot on this sort of subject and some people are just searching for the next new thing you probably know someone that i'm talking about whenever there's a new film out it's the hottest scariest coolest film ever made and when there's a new technology they thrive on working it out first you know they're looking for those new things those are the early adopters and there's a whole area of society that just wants things to be the way they've always been they over glamorize the way things used to be you know, they're very set in their ways. And, um, you know, generally an older audience would fit into this category more than a younger audience. And anyone trying to change the culture 
is always going to get vocal resistance from these people, you know. An example of that resistance is, I don't know exactly when it was, maybe t- 10 years ago now, quite a while, like introducing LED lights, you know, with 90% efficiency savings on the old-fashioned type of bulb that would mostly release heat. And it's just a no-brainer. It saves money for them. It saves energy collectively and emissions and all round. It's like there's effectively zero negative effect on society. And But people were up in arms, you know, the, like it was change that that was rocking their very world you know the primary argument against it was the the white harshness of the light but if you want an orange light just buy an led light with an orange tinted filter you know it's they're in the supermarkets it's a no-brainer but there was massive pushback and and it's not pushback because of that it's because they just don't want things to change they want things to be always the way they were but obviously things the way they were and always have been is not a very satisfying or appealing future for us right now So the interesting thing here, I suppose, is how do you find those early adopters who are most receptive to change? And how do we and and remember that there is a big chunk of people in the middle and not getting overly stressed about the fact that there are going to be a few people push back on that change because that's inevitable, even if your idea is the best idea in the world. So how do we make that transition between the early adopters and the middle? And that's an interesting, you know, discussion point to have, you know, and who are you talking to? Who are your audience? You know, are they early adopters? Or are they someone who likes things to be the way it's always been? And you have to be very careful about the way you present things and your wording. And I'll probably actually come back to this later in the series. So let me move on for now. I'm going to get you to imagine 10 people in a line and each of them represent 10% of society. You know, a caricature, if you like, for that portion of society. And they're all lined up, at least for now, in terms of their level of engagement and their attitudes towards climate change. And on the left, you have the sort of eco-warrior environmentalist. And, you know, on the other side is a, is a group of people who have real pushback against climate action. And by the way, I'm avi- avoiding the term climate denialist on purpose because it's, it's overstating denialist if I label them as 10%. And that's not constructive for a range of reasons. But regardless, this group on the right has some real objections to meaningful climate action for a whole range of reasons, and the most extreme of which is that they just simply don't believe it exists. But if you look at a worldwide population, there's no no way 10% of people don't believe in climate change. What I want to draw attention to now is not the people on the on the extremes, but the massive majority in the middle, the silent middle. And that sort of 80% of society, this 80%, most of the attention and most of the voices on any given sustainability topic come from the extremes, from either end. But these people in the middle are key. You know, most of them are disengaged for a whole host of reasons, but a lot of them believe, you know, most of them believe in climate change and all of them would like it if we solved a number of environmental issues, especially the guys leaning towards the environmentalist side, you know, on the left side of the spectrum. And if we want mass change, our ultimate goal is to empower and inspire and engage this middle. And we need to remember, we don't need to convince the hardline people that are against climate change. We, we can get 90% there without them. And, and I'd take 90% right now, wouldn't you? <laughs> you know, but by the time we're 90%, politicians can no longer ignore the people. Governments will be forced to act for the benefit of all. And everyone's going to be pulled along um, for the ride. Don't sweat the last 10%, you know, and what I'm also going to say about this is start with the most receptive. The, the easiest way to get some immediate action is to start with the people who are most receptive to your idea. These guys standing right next to the environmentalists and the climate scientists. And these are the people in the world that badly want to hear your message. Their values are very similar to yours, but the er- they're the early adopters that are already enrolled in the idea of the journey. They're ready, but they're not yet acting. So I can't tell you the answer, but I can ask the question, you know, how do you find those people who are most receptive to your idea?
keep the same spectrum in mind, but instead of the mass population, I'm going to imagine the spectrum of businesses. You know, you have CEOs of different businesses spread out across this spectrum. The greenest, sort of most eco-friendly on the left and the, and the most polluting sort of evil fossil fuel types on the, on the right. And so we can all be a part of helping shine the light on the people or businesses that are leading the way. You know, we have to give them great positive exposure. We're kind of all in this battle for sustainability together. So don't be shy to retweet, share other people's ideas and help them send their message to the masses and boost the virality of the other messages you believe in, even if it's not your own and promote and engage people with other ideas as if they were your own. You know, we should be searching for opportunities to champion the champions and make it make sense to be on the environmental end of the spectrum. You know, we should be looking for business to business opportunities within the more sustainable businesses that that help each other thrive. And, and if you're in policy or government or regulation, you need to use that power to create an environment that favors people doing the right thing. We're trying to create a business and a cultural and a environment where it's more profitable, and more advantageous to be on the ethical end of the spectrum. At the moment, if I stand in the silent middle, let's imagine I'm standing in the silent middle, or you are, you know, of that business spectrum, and I look one way and I see huge profits, and I look the other way and I see ethics, you know, and most people, they shrug their shoulders, decide they need a bit of both, and find somewhere in the middle that kind of seems to work for them, find the right fit for me. And, but that's really not a helpful construct, because as soon as money gets tight, sustainability motivation quivers, you know, it's a, it becomes a thing that only luxurious sort of very profitable businesses do sometimes the profit versus moral thing is true but it's not always the case and there are lots of examples of people taking sustainable action and increasing profitability especially in the long run where you're not draining down whatever resource you're relying on it's really a destructive misconception and it inhibits people's engagement with sustainability I'm not immune to it. I've kind of thought about these things a lot, but I'm not immune to it. I felt it myself recently. You know, a huge hydro dam just flooded my home and I had to move out of the, uh, my own house, which uh, long-time listeners of the podcast will know very well. And, um, and some of the rapids where I operate in my business and we had to move to a different section of the river. And fortunately, we still have great rapids. You know, our quality of product is still excellent, but it was very disruptive. You know, the dam was well publicized, so it affected market perception there was costs associated with the transition and things have been a bit tight for a while and while the back's against the wall and trying to make sure you make salaries i don't want to lay people off and and people that i've worked and lived with for a long time i don't want i don't want to undermine their living conservation it took a back seat you know and it had to well no it didn't have to i'm trying i shouldn't be there's me reinforcing that same bloody thing right so but what if the ethos and the business environment that I'm operating in was such that I get into a bit of a pickle my back's against the wall and the answer is improving the health of my business via sustainability it opens up new markets as it give me some kind of other favorable incentives then you kind of have this environment where the silent middle are scrambling into sustainability especially when things are tight they're driven into it because the environment encourages it the other thing to say about this is it's often not true you know, I have to say some examples about some environmentally uh, friendly aspects of your business making you more profitable because you know, things like energy saving, using water filters instead of buying plastic bottles, it saved me thousands of dollars and, you know, access to new markets, improved brand and ultimately a, a key part of sustainability is, is having a resource to continue operating with in 10 years time. You know, one of the things I'm fighting for in Uganda is the health of the riverbanks and the ecosystems and the wildlife that lives in it and, and that 
obviously comes in part from a genuine passion for wanting those things to thrive. It makes me sad to my very core when I see another section of riverbank destroyed and the wildlife struggling again, monkeys sitting on tree stumps. It makes me really sad. But also, if my products operate on a river that rely at least in part on nature as a setting for a meaningful quality experience, then my products are underlined in the, in the long run. So is my business. So, you know, back to the profitability thing. And I, and I love this, by the way. This is another great example, you know. And I have to give examples because this is so well ingrained, this profit versus moral. I'm going to give you another example. A bunch of the oil companies in the Middle East now are using solar panels to generate the power to pull the oil out of the ground. Think about that for a second. It's not because they're trying to reduce their footprint, by the way. <laughs> they haven't all of a sudden come across as a change of heart and whatever. It's because it's cheaper for them to do it that way. And that's just mad. They have immediate access to cost price fuel on site, no transportation. And it's still cheaper for them to use solar, solar panels. So they do. And that's a real source of hope. It means that even with ethics aside, the, the future in that area especially is in solar and so can you do something to break that moral versus profit dialogue? And can you showcase a counterexample with your words? You, you might just get a few more folks engaged. And actually, you might just get a lot more folks engaged. If the businesses look towards environmental side of the spectrum and see a thriving, profitable businesses who are benefiting tremendously from being sustainable and ethical, who wouldn't want to be on the right side of their morals? You know, think about it. <laughs> Why wouldn't people humans want to be on the right side of ethics you know if that if it's better for them to do so you know so and while we're at it let's let's bring the same concept to the personal because this is also important here so let's look one way as an individual and see quality of life the luxuries we enjoy right now and the other way and we see morals and ethics that's a well ingrained and a massive destructive construct when you battle your environmental conscience against core human drives you know people shrug their shoulders and find a place in the middle that works for them and it really undermines shifting towards environmental end of the spectrum but the construct of quality of life versus morals is not always true either so can you do something to break that moral versus quality of life dialogue can you showcase a counterexample with your work or your idea you know make it a win-win once again people look towards the moral end of the spectrum and see a better quality of life better experience and some answers to their basic human drives, who wouldn't want to engage? I can't actually move on from this topic without giving you another very recent and very powerful illustration of this. But this really moved me and I want to share this because, and I know that some people are listening that are involved in this as well. So, and I know some people are listening and be like, oh, well, this is all very nice, moral high ground, philosoph uh, philosophizing, 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 something like that, can't say that word. But when it comes down to real world reality, moral versus profit does exist and it's impossible to shake you know some people are thinking that even as i'm talking it and i and i know that and i understand that look at this example of, of a way that they created an environment so the sustainable travel africa summit i just attended full of really special and wonderfully quirky people and um, judy the uh, running the event she's smart and she gets this stuff and, and at the end of the conference she wanted real action a powerful legacy to ripple out through the tourism industry she really cares you know and so she wanted talk to turn to action so she created a legacy program and a community that, that totally broke down the profit versus moral dialogue, decimated that. You know, we put it out to the room that anyone who lays out a sustainable goal post-conference and follows through on their goal, she's going to showcase that person and that brand or that business to her network, which is a significant positive exposure to the industry. She's got a big social following. Uh, she's involved in 
a number of publications and, and very well connected also and she she also offered support in terms of like guiding them through those goals you know and also with connecting people to others in her network uh, or advice to help guide people through their action and she created a community you know a real sense of community out of this legacy program and and she put it to that community critically to see what else they could offer other members see if there were members of the community that she just created that were willing to support others as well and the mind got passed around this room and person to person people pledged support positive exposure through whatever means connections amazing things you know connections to the primary movers and shakers of the industry you know positive exposure in magazines newspapers articles books websites you know big websites like the un world trade organization websites as a showcasing example of positive sustainable tourism you know that's huge in this industry you know and, and internships for students in their organizations the list went on and on and on it was honestly it was amazing and it actually made me pretty emotional it was it was really inspiring you know she created an environment by being sincere and by offering to the community what what she could give with she didn't have an alternative motive she led by example and she honestly i think she just really wanted change to happen and honestly i don't think it's ever been more profitable or beneficial for someone to make steps than people that are involved in that sustainable legacy program the list of positive exposure and benefits to people engaging are just dramatic, you know, and it's just flipped that over, you know, even if there is a cost to whatever that action was, that goal, tenfold over, you have the chance to really benefit. That's amazing. It's a good example of uh, some, you, someone creating that environment. I would say also beyond that, like there's a cold hard, well, it now makes profitability sense for me to engage in all of these things. But I'd say there's a much more depth to it than that. And I, and I feel that it really inspired people. And I'm so, you know, I'm, I'm so excited to get on with my own sustainable agenda. And I also to watch and support other people in the, in the legacy program as a, as a sort of sense of community. That's a really cool example. It was really moving and it hit at various levels from deep and straight up, you know, positive um, business environment as well. So there's a hashtag, if you're interested, by the way, it's hashtag ST. AS19 Legacy, Stas Legacy. So check it out if you're interested in seeing more. And if you're involved in the Legacy program, let's get it done and make it happen. It's exciting. Use that. Like this is the, the environment has never been better. So take advantage of it and let's inspire the other people in the program too. So just to bring out that example and, and bring it in all to the general, you know, can you create something to replicate that legacy with your idea? Can you Break down the moral versus profit dialogue or highlight a counterexample. It's the sort of thing we need to shift the culture and it has the power to do so in a very big way. Another strategy for changing the culture is to put problematic people or companies or behaviors in their place. Call them out, reframe them as villains. So call it villainize the villains, right? So this is already happening on social media. This strategy can be effective in shaming those villains into improved or cleaner action great but i think what's more important with this is how how this type of public shaming relates to the silent middle and this is really too easy to overlook so you're talking to the villain but you're actually communicating not just to the villain but also to the masses that silent middle that 80 percent you know how you call the villain out and how you come across to the masses is critical and ultimately we want to reshape the public perception of that villainous behavior and you want the silent middle to be up in arms about the same thing you are and actually villainizing that behavior but if in your public shaming you're coming across in a negative way that that's not going to help 
remember, you're talking from your own views and values, but they're standing in the middle watching the back and forth, and they don't have the same values as you. They're looking left, and they're looking right to two different people who are, you know, two different groups of people that have different values, and they're trying to decide who's, who they agree with. I'd say the vegan movement is, is really guilty of doing this in the wrong way, you know, so it's much better for our environment. I think, you know, very few people disagree with that now, that it would be better if you ate vegan than eating a high meat, high dairy diet, okay? But I think it's not healthy and, and, and positive to the silent middle, the way that that movement goes about it. So that would be just a bit of an example, but let me move on. I'm getting in too deep into that topic because that's all kind of worms. Change happens for all sorts of reasons. And most often it's from things like big corporations quietly influencing and lobbying behind the scenes, slowly squeezing things that are there, trying to impose their own interests on society through the back door, people in power taking action for their own interests or because they're being lobbied to. And But it struck me when I was reading about all these things that all of the best type of change happens from the roots up, from the people to the power. And when the people care enough, their life is affected enough, they demand it. And history is littered with examples of movements that shape the world we live in, driven and initiated by the people who started with courage and determination, but no power. All of the best leaders that are driven social change have come from that environment. So let's, let's take Nelson Mandela, for example, leading a peaceful revolution in South Africa to bring down apartheid. And, and critically, Beyond the immediate sort of collapse of apartheid, he worked hard to forgive, to break down barriers in society afterwards. And that was a really powerful part of his legacy. So Martin Luther King, for example, having the courage and the audacity to stand up in an impressed sort of racist society that classed him as a second class citizen. But the people were ready to hear his message and they rallied behind him on his own. He was a second class citizen with no power, but with the people behind him, he had the power to influence change and how many of the positive steps we've made in society do we do we owe to the people you know women's rights the suffragettes the abolition of slavery you know universal health care in the uk for example was formed immediately after the second world war when people had been rocked to their very core because of a massive massive public will for nobody to be left behind big changes were happening and people in the uk do not know how lucky we have it some people do obviously but having traveled extensively it is an amazing thing having the National Health Service. And compared to the US or a number of other Western countries, we're just so lucky. And that was large-scale, positive human driving forces from the ground up. And that's real power. And right now, things are changing. People are sick and tired of lack of climate action. And on a scale that we've never seen before, taking peaceful, disruptive, and powerful action, this is the next movement that people are going to look back on just like I reflected on and they're going to list this as an example of how something shaped our society for the better you know and it's a it's a fight that makes all our other fights right now by the way almost irrelevant the fight for equality of gender becomes a lot less relevant in a collapsed society where only a small population of the richer countries in more climate friendly parts of the the world survive and all the progress and that we've made around race equality, you know, and I know we're a long way from where we'd, we'd like to be, but we've made massive progress in the last 100 years, you know, or 200 years. But in a highly tense, firm borders, struggling world, tribalism is going to rear its ugly head and race and nationalism is going to take much more powerful role once again. Climate change undermines all of these battles, you know, and I hope that we're going to look back on this climate movement as the thing that brought back 
our society from the brink, you know, and I hope we solve these problems. And the, the real question is, I suppose, the current question, given all this is happening and mostly we've got our heads in the sand and it's happening around us and what am I going to do to support this movement? You know, what, what are you going to do? You know, and, and are you part of the movement that's fighting for your, for your own welfare, you know, for the future of your children and, and for the world we live in? You know, everyone you love and have ever met are living and existing in this world and there's people fighting for it right now for your future and their future but are we apart have i engaged enough are you and i are we going to be reluctant late starters you know passive bystanders enjoying the wealth of our society while we still have it at the expense of other people you know in in, in the poorer societies and at the expense of the natural world and and if the latter am i really ready for some pretty powerful and difficult conversations with my son cater when he's old enough to look back with the hindsight also of our climate-affected world when there's no hiding our heads in the sand when we're getting slapped with it in the face. You know, when we're able to see the collective suffering, we know what the cause was and wonder, why were you so selfish? What was happening then, you know? Why weren't you behind something that was fighting for everyone's future? Better be ready to answer some of those questions, you know. And so we're all just living our lives preoccupied by the problems of our past and the problems of our present. And for the most part, ignoring the issue of our time and the big problem of our future, which ultimately, if not tackled, is going to undermine all the others, like I just said. So we need to wake up. You know, we need to be a part of this movement that's fighting for our own future. I think I'm going to leave it there. The next global movement is actually tomorrow, 24th of May. Fridays for Future. That's tomorrow from when I'm recording this. And I'm excited to see what happens. You know, if, you, if you're hearing it in a current way, you know, check out Fridays for Future. And, but if you're not listening to this episode as it comes out, there's, there's many more of these protests coming. So it doesn't take much to organize a meetup between a few friends, show a documentary at your local pub, hold a strike, or just get, get involved in something that someone else is doing. So whatever, there is... Something also wonderfully engaging and empowering about being part of something massive, about being part of that movement that's changing the world that we're going to live in and being part of something that's ultimately changing the culture, that's changing our future for the better. That wraps up part two of engaging the masses, changing the culture. And part three is coming soon. It's about digging down into your sustainable agenda and inspiring actions in your ideas. It's about using powerful empathy to understand others and to connect your ideas with their values. Doubles down into a bit more specific action that you can take as individuals and how, you know, strategies that you can directly use as businessman or as a activist or just as a concerned citizen uh, to engage people. If you feel inclined, tell anyone you can about the series in any way that works for you, social media, in person, by review, or whatever. Keep in touch. Share your ideas with me too. Stand by for part three of Engaging the Masses. Powerful Empathy.